Welcome to Mosaic, the EDC podcast. Mosaic is a place to explore pressing challenges in education, health, and economic opportunity with EDC staff around the world. I'm your host, Rachel Pascal, Prevention Specialist at EDC. Today's podcast is part of a special series on the current opioid epidemic. Seasoned prevention practitioners understand the importance of evidence. But what happens when new problems like opioid misuse and overdose emerge and there isn't the same body of evidence to turn to? What other evidence can we rely on and how can we build that body of evidence for future prevention practitioners? Joining me today to answer these questions are Kristen Quinlan and Kim Dash, both public health researchers at EDC. Welcome, Kim and Kristen. So nice to have you. Nice to be here, Rachel. Yes, nice to be here as well. Let's start out the conversation by defining some terms. Kristen, can you describe what we mean by evidence-based? Absolutely, Rachel. When we talk about evidence-based, we're really talking about a continuum. On one end of the continuum, we have programs and practices with a lot of research support and well-designed, really rigorous evaluations. This is the type of program we usually think about when we talk about evidence-based programs. On the other end of the continuum, we have programs and practices that have been less well evaluated. For this example, um, this might be a program developed to meet a specific need in a local community. Um, This isn't to say that programs and practices like these aren't valuable or that they don't work. They may just need more research. So this is Kim, and I'd like to add that this notion of an evidence-based continuum is found in in many different definitions of what constitutes an evidence-based program. And and what do do most definitions have in common? Well, most definitions agree that evidence-based involves using scientific or other methods to determine if something works to produce anticipated outcomes. So for practitioners addressing the opioid crisis, This continuum idea and the idea of using the best available research or evidence is really important. Programs and practices that address opioid misuse and overdose are often on the side of the continuum where things have been less well evaluated. Again, this is not to say that they don't work or aren't valuable. It's just to say that we have less available evidence to support them. So given this lack of evidence, What should practitioners do? What are some alternatives? Because the rise of opioid misuse and overdose rates in our country is a fairly new problem, prevention practitioners are often not able to rely on evidence-based programs. But that's not to say we don't have some good options. Practice-based evidence means a program or practice that grew out of something that worked in the real world. When you lack evidence-based practice, take a look around for practices that seem to already be working naturally in the real world. For example, when Bill Miller, the founder of Motivational Interviewing, was working with his clients, he noticed that a certain set of clinical statements and questions seemed to increase a client's motivation for change um, in his substance abuse treatment settings. His clinical practices were very different than those that were generally accepted for treating substance abuse at the time, but they really grew out of success in the clinical encounter. He packaged these principles into the evidence-based practice of motivational interviewing, but the roots of motivational interviewing come from real-world clinical practice. So another idea is to use your expertise from other substances. Prevention approaches for emerging substances are tricky because we don't yet have a lot of evidence to support their efficacy. 
But what we do have is a really long history of prevention. We know a lot about what works in prevention, and we can draw on that experience to deal with this new opioid crisis. It just means that we need to monitor implementation carefully. With that in mind, we suggest first drawing on what works for substances that share similar risk factors to opioids. For example, we know that underage drinking is associated with availability. When you reduce availability, it helps to reduce underage drinking. We can draw on this knowledge to impact opioids too. Prescription opioid misuse is similarly impacted by availability. Reducing availability should, in theory, reduce opioid misuse. The methods we use to reduce availability would obviously be pretty different between underage drinking and opioid misuse, but the underlying risk factor really remains the same. Thanks, Kristen. It's interesting to think about applying lessons learned from other prevention efforts to this current crisis. Kim, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Certainly. I mean, given the fact that opioid misuse and overdose prevention is a relatively new field, there will be situations in which implementing a prevention strategy with limited evidence is the best course of action. In these cases, it is best to identify a promising approach that makes theoretical and practical sense and address the underlying risk or protective factors. Then evaluate this approach using the most rigorous methods possible. So, for example, we know that a substantial number of people who misuse opioids may shop doctors until they find one who will write them a prescription. Therefore, it makes theoretical or logical or practical sense that we would want to focus on changing provider prescribing behaviors. However, there is little evidence that provider education prevents the non-medical use of prescription drugs. So in this case, our program design might incorporate elements from other highly effective provider education programs that have targeted health behaviors other than opioid misuse. And to jump in, it's also important to consider innovation based on your understanding of the problem. What do we know about human behavior change? For example, if you know that low perception of harm is associated with opioid use, think about how perception of harm has been successfully altered for other substances. Media campaigns work for changing perception of harm, for example. If you opt to use a media campaign to change perception of harm for opioid use, misuse, you can turn to all of the evidence-based knowledge accumulated on best practices for this approach. Yes, Kristen, that's true. And, and I would add that, that practitioners also consult with their state's evidence-based work group if one is available and active in their state. I mean, many states have these evidence-based work groups, and these are typically a collection of evaluation specialists who are tasked with making choices about what constitutes best evidence of effectiveness. So in addition to consulting your evidence-based work group, what else can practitioners do to grow the body of evidence for programs that seek to reduce opioid misuse and overdose? I would say that if, if you're using a program for which there is limited available evidence, the need for evaluation is particularly strong. So if you don't have experience in evaluation, you should look for ways to increase your capacity. You know, you would not want to spend resources on a program that doesn't work, or worse, has the has, you know, potentially negative effects. So you can use process measures and conduct lots of assessments along the way so you can tweak things if necessary. You want to document the story of your program. You, you know, you want to ask yourself, 
what components did we add? What did we decide to leave out? And why did we decide that? And what were our expected outcomes? And, and if you're not an experienced evaluator, attend professional development opportunities where you can build your evaluation skills. And, and don't forget to take advantage of student evaluators. Local universities are full of students looking for thesis and dissertation projects. Evaluation is an up-and-coming field, and lots of graduates are looking for evaluation experience. So I would say contact your local university to find supervised student volunteers who can help you evaluate your efforts. You might want to join the American Evaluation Association and other professional organizations where evaluators gather. And you may find an evaluator willing to jumpstart your program's evaluation in exchange for some publication opportunities. Speaking of publications, it's important to give back to the prevention community by publishing or presenting on your efforts. If you have evaluation data on a program designed to address an emerging substance, publish it. Our field is under-resourced and as preventionists, we have a responsibility to keep others from duplicating efforts or reinventing the wheel. Even if it's not a rigorous evaluation that will meet the standards of a really highly competitive journal, other practitioners really need to hear about your work. Present at conferences, write a blog, contact your state NPN or your prevention office and offer a copy of your evaluation report. You really want to get the word out. Thanks for tuning in today. For more information on programs to address opioid misuse or EDC's work around the world, please visit our website, edc.org.